Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. My name's Andrew Harrison. The predicted autumn spike in the pandemic seems to be here. Sajid Javid is warning of the potential of 100,000 new cases a day pretty soon. The government is now under pressure to enact what it's calling Plan B, a return to the homeworking and mask mandates we saw in mid-lockdown. On Wednesday, the UK reported 223 COVID deaths, the biggest daily rise since March, and the seven-day average of new cases is now around 40,000. The UK now has one of the highest weekly rates of new reported cases in the world, and there's now concern about the new AY.4.2 variant, the Delta variant variant, which is 10 to 15% more infectious than its predecessor. The head of the NHS Confederation has warned the government that it must implement Plan B winter measures or the backlog of 5 million patients who haven't been treated will not be dealt with. So what exactly is the renewed autumn pressure doing to the NHS and can it withstand this spike? Back on the podcast after too long, it's our man on the National Health Front, writer, commentator and independent health analyst, Roy Lilly. Hello, Roy. How are you? I'm super good. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Thank you. Good to have you on. We only seem to speak when things are getting awful again. <laughs> this is the Doom Broadcasting slash exactly, yes. Department. Doom FM. Right so, yeah. so just just for context, it is worth asking, we're hearing this stuff about Plan B, and you're not a fan of Plan A and Plan B nomenclature at all, are you? What does Plan A consist of, short of do what you like? Well, exactly. I mean, look, there's a there's a, a substantial management failing in having this plan A and plan B thing. And let me just explain. I mean, plan A is like doing what we're doing now. Plan B is you know, working from home and COVID passports and wear a mask and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. What is the transition? There is no point in saying, OK, uh, we're going to stop doing plan, e, plan A and do plan B if we don't have the linking bit in the middle that says what is the, tr- the, trans- the, tr- the trigger for us switching from A to B. Because without the trigger, plan A is useless because it will just trail on forever. Without the trigger... Plan B is totally superfluous because we're never going to get to it because we won't know at what point we have to get to it. Now, you know, the government say, oh, well, we're kind of thinking about this and we're going to get to it if the NHS is overwhelmed. Well, we don't want to get to it if the NHS is overwhelmed. That's too late. If we're going to get to it because the NHS is super busy, well, like, for example... If you've got to wait seven hours for an ambulance to turn up, well, it's happening now. If hospitals are declaring what's called OPAL 4, which in, uh, you know, in a layman's old language is a black alert and we're full, well, it's happening now. If we can't get people home safely because social services can't do the uh, get your home safely uh, packages of care, well, it's happening now. I mean, all of this is happening now. So the question is, how bad does it have to get? Because the 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 whole issue here is headroom. So if we if we accept the fact that one in five beds now are occupied occupied with people by COVID. That gives us four beds. Those four beds, we've got to deal with trauma, we've got to deal with elective procedures, cancer and medical medical problems. Now, if we get a bad flu season, for example, and we don't know whether we're going to get a bad flu season or not, because in epidemiological terms, we are in uncharted territory. We've never have had the world in lockdown before. We've never had communities without any natural immunity to viruses. So we don't know how bad the flu season is going to be. We've got five, six, maybe seven million people waiting for operations. The NHS just simply doesn't have the headroom to cope with all this. So what are the triggers? 
what is it going to take for somebody in the cabinet to wake up and say, do you know what, we need plan B? So what should those triggers be? Or is it possible to say concisely what the, what the triggers ought to be to move into a new tighter regime? Yes, it is. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm not the man to do it, but we've got plenty of big brains in epidemiology and all the other modelers that will say, you know, if, if X happens, then Y is the consequence. And we should be doing that. We should not leave the linking piece between A and B to the discretion of the cabinet, who are clearly torn. They're torn between keeping the coffee shops open, keeping the economy running, keeping the money coming in, the lights on, the, the cash registers going ka-ching. I absolutely get that. I mean, I'm not some, you know, lockdown nutcase. I get that. But there has to be a point where if you don't do do it, we will be in real trouble again. All the numbers are going north. All the indicators are there, despite the fact that we've got vaccines. I mean, if you ask me what I would do, I would move into sort of a plan B minus. I'd say, OK, let's have a vaccine passport for these big events because they are super spreaders. And let's everybody, let's mandate masks because that isn't a, you know, a huge invasion of our privacy. And thirdly, when it comes to asking people to work from home, I'd wait till about the second week in November and I'd do three weeks where we'd ask everyone to work at home. And that gives us then a fire break to have a run in through Christmas and everyone hopefully will be able to enjoy a proper family Christmas. But without it, you know, I can just see what's going to happen. That's exactly where we were this time last year, though, wasn't it? for a fire break didn't happen and then you end up with this, this panic response to Christmas. Exactly and look at the countries that did the fire break they didn't have the panic. If this comes and when it comes it's not going to be taking place in, in isolation. Can we expect people to stick to tighten regulations when they've all experienced that sort of deliberately engineered sense of relief and release calling the relaxation of regulations freedom day and talking about uh, you know escape and all this kind of stuff people would not be experiencing these regulations as a blank slate no. for a lot of people they feel like they've, they've kind of done the pandemic they've had their shots why do they need further restrictions yeah, it's Groundhog Day. It's about leadership, isn't it? It's national leadership. It all comes down to, you know, the attitude of the Prime Minister, which is, you know, throughout all this has been pretty cavalier. You know, a presence on the telly. I mean, I don't know if you saw Sajid Javid on the telly last night delivering uh, the first Downing Street um, peroration we've had since, I think, September, isn't it? Uh, and, I, I mean, I think he was just awful. I mean, I know he's only just in the job and he's trying to get the marbles out of his mouth and it is a big thing and he's got to get, you know, the whole lot under his belt. But he just sort of stood there and lectured the nation uh, like some startled lemur, I thought. I mean, it, we don't want that, but this needs, like, the fireside approach. This needs trusted people, the, the sort of the David Attenborough-type person to sit down in a chair, not stand up and lecture us all and say, listen, folks, here's the situation. We, you know, everybody's done very well. We've been able to open up. But hey, look, it looks like, you know, the viruses, the, the, the vaccinations are waning. We've got to get the third jabs organised. Please go and get your third jab. We have no idea what's going to happen with flu. Please get your flu jab. And look, we all want to be safe for Christmas. So here's what I'm going to suggest we do. Now, I know it's a pain. I know you don't want to do it. But please go with me on this because we think it's the safest thing we can do. I mean, I think 
the British public are sensible. They can look at the numbers. They're not stupid. They're not epidemiologists. But, you know, we can understand the numbers. And if you approached it like that, say, you know, help me, look after each other, go with me on this, I think people would do it. But standing up and lecturing with a bloody union jack at your backside, I mean, I just think it's just ridiculous. I'd be massively interested to see who you'd nominate, Roy, to be the trusted figure from Cabinet. <laughs> of people, when they're sitting by the fire, you know, with a plate of hobnobs, that they would listen to what they were going to say. I think we're a little bit short of, in fact, completely bereft on that. But there, there is massive inconsistency on the message, isn't there? It's one thing Javid saying, well, we may need to wear a mask, and, and simultaneously nobody on the Conservative benches in the Commons is doing it. Kwarteng saying government's not interested in bringing back curbs. I mean, yes. have, have they blown it already, do you think, having... <laughs> Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, for, for, for Quasi Kwarteng to say the government aren't interested in more curbs, I mean, not interested, really. I mean, come on. He's in an eaten, educated, you know, super sensible, very bright man. He, he, he can't use casual language like that and be allowed to get away with it. And Javid, well, I, you know, I'm, I think that, you know, the jury's out on him. He, he was thrown in the deep end, wasn't he? Because, uh, you know, Hank lost his job because of his infidelity. So, uh, I mean, it's been thrown in the deep end and, and you know, who, who knows what. But, I mean, the, the the whole question of trust in politicians and trust in the way, and certainly, I mean, if you, no one was wearing a mask, were they, in the House of Commons the other day? In fact, so much so, the House of Lords actually commented on it yesterday when they were doing health questions. We There is this sort of... I don't know how to... A a national mood for believing it's all over. And I think that the politicians have quite sort of encouraged that. They're happy for people to believe it's all over because they must get the economy back up and running. I mean, we're up to our armpits in debt. We've got to get the cash registers going ka-ching again. That's very, very important. So it suits the government for people to think it's all over because they can say, well, we didn't say it's all over. It's just, you know, people themselves have assumed it's all over. And Javid, I know, I mean, I don't know how you took what he said the other night, but I thought he kind of segued into a plan C somewhere or other where he was saying, do your lateral flow test before you go out with your mates, only meet them outdoors and wear a mask. Where does that come from? I mean, the government and its supporters would contend, though, I should imagine that the cases are up to the, a similar kind of peak that we saw in July, but deaths are much, much lower than the January peak, which is 1,100 a day. The seven-day average is up, up now about 100. You often hear people say, well, it's OK for people to get hospitalised because because of the vaccine, people don't die quite so much, so it's it's fine. What's your response to that? I think it's true. I mean, I, I, and I think, um, you know, we've got two, two new antivirals, aren't they, that are in train as well, providing they get through MHRA testing, um, then that will be more to our armoury. So everything that they've said is true. Look, this is all about headroom. When they say this is to protect the NHS, people have got this image, you know, of, of knackered nurses and doctors. It, it, you know, it's not about saving them, although we should be saving them, but it, it, the Technically, it's about headroom. We have the few, one of the fewest numbers of beds per thousand across the OECD. I mean, it's really very low. It's about three, I think, uh, per thousand. Uh, and we've got the fewest number of ratio of nurses and doctors as well across the OECD. People listening to this, just Google OECD figures and, and you'll see for yourself what the exact numbers are. And you'll be amazed to see how far down the list we are. So we don't have very much capacity in the system. We came into COVID with low bed numbers and low staff. 
Now, we kind of struggled through, managed through, uh, muddled through elegantly the last COVID thing. And now we're faced with another COVID thing, which nobody's really quite sure about. And you mentioned in your introduction, the new variant. We don't know what that's going to do. We've got the uncertainty of the the flu jab thing because we don't know how hard we're going to be hit with flu. And we've got five million people, at least probably more, waiting for an operation. Now, they, they can't do all three because if you're looking after COVID patients, you have social distancing. You have to pretty much carve out a chunk of your hospital. You know, the food's got to be done differently. The estates have got to be done differently. The maintenance differently. The, the rostering's different. PPE is different. So you lose a chunk of your hospital. Then on top of that, you've got the day-to-day stuff, pe- people falling off a ladder and and uh, having a stroke and a heart attack you've got to deal with that then there's the flu and when people come in flu it's generally elderly people with chest exacerbations and what have you they're in for a few days or they have a uti they're in for a few days you know and then the difficulty is getting them home because they need to be home safely with a bit of social care that's a problem so it what what happens is the headroom that there is in the nhs and the nhs operates at a, a, over 90 percent capacity the world health organization says that the safe level is 83%, but we're always well above that. So if you're 90% in the normal run of things, we're knocking on the door of 100% full now. So there is no headroom. So you get to the point where if there is a smack on the motorway and someone comes into the hospital, there's nowhere to put them. Uh, And you get to the point where people, you know, they are having difficulty breathing and they've got to be put on oxygen. They have to come into hospital pretty much for that. There's nowhere to put them. So you just run out of room. And that's what we mean when we say protecting the NHS. It's not really protecting the NHS. It's protecting the NHS's capacity to cope. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Rishi Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Are there particular kind of areas of surgery treatment that are kind of en masse are particularly under pressure because of what's happening with COVID? Are there particular areas of treatment where it's harder and harder to get attention? Yes. I mean, cancer is is the, the, is the big worry because if, if you turn up, you know, with a lump query cancer, then you've got to get rocking and roll on that really quick. Um, so there's no messing about with that. Now, the NHS hasn't done badly on cancer. I have to say through COVID, what they did was they created COVID hubs like bubbles 
where people were screened and and they were taken care of and the 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 cancer treatments were only just below the numbers that that we were achieving before covid so they did quite well on that so that is a that's a real problem um so we've got to make sure that that we've got the bed spaces and what have you for covid then of course the other thing that won't wait somebody has a heart attack or a stroke they have to come in they've got to come in and that's a medical bed and the the medical beds are full of people with a flu and covid where do you put them i mean and the other issue is i mean you know we all talk about beds to be honest you know you can put beds up in a corridor you can put beds up in the boardroom you can put beds anywhere i mean when i was running a hospital you know if you needed beds you could always get beds the problem is who looks after the people in the bed you know you need doctors and you need nurses and i know i keep banging the same drum people get fed up with me hearing that but you know, fed up with me saying it but we you know we have a huge staff shortage it's not just here it's a global shortage so when the nhs says oh we're going to recruit overseas uh, you know my answer to that is oh really well where are they going to come from because if, if you're going to get them from france or germany or italy or you know wherever they're all short of people as well and the people you're recruiting these aren't just you know newly recruited nurses or what have you look at radiographers where where i think it, we've got the 32% shortage of radiographers you bring those people in they're mature people they got families so they got and then somewhere to live they've got their kids have got to go in school they'll have a partner who probably wants to work as well this is a whole relocation package and so it's very difficult to do so all of this you know it, it I fear you know this is not easy there are no easy solutions all we can do is get vaccinated uh, wear a mask and do you know do all the stuff that we know is sensible related to this what did you make of javid's promise of uh, a right to a face-to-face gp appointment on one side of the argument where people say well video appointments during the pandemic have been quite good because it's stopped people presenting with small and meaningless and trivial problems the counter argument to that is people often turn up with one thing and the doctor will spot something much more serious that needs attending to on the spot what did you make of that promise I, I don't know how he's got himself into this mess. I mean, who runs the NHS? Is it, is it Sajid Javid or is it the Daily Mail have been running this bonkers campaign? Look, in, in August, which are the last figures that um, are available, because there's a bit of a time lag in collecting them, I think I'm right in saying, um, I, I won't go to the stake on this, but I think I'm right in saying there were 25 million uh, GP consultations, of which 19 million were face-to-face. The rest were either telemed, uh, uh, you know, videos and things like that, or, or with other healthcare professionals. Now, look, before COVID, let's, you know, life before COVID, before COVID, do you remember there was an outfit called Babylon who burst on the scene and started to offer a, a video consultation tool on, a, on your smartphone? Um, uh, Matt Hancock, who was the Secretary of State at the time, got into trouble because he got it on his phone. He said, we think this is a great idea and, you know, I love it. And he, and he got into trouble for advertising or whatever it is he shouldn't have done but there's no doubt about it it was good and 80,000 people signed up for Babylon in three months now that wiped the practices out 
who lost those people because they get paid per head for having the people. So, you know, thousands of people <laughs> suddenly migrated to this app. The NHS, uh, you know, went into panic mode and they changed the reimbursement mechanisms for GPs to try and accommodate this. So we know that telephone consultations were terrific. And in my own case, you know, if I was going into London, I'd get up early, I'd go in from Ascot Railway Station into Waterloo, there'd be, you know, a thousand people on the train, we'd all left before the GP's practice had opened, we came home in the evening after the GP practice had closed what can you do? So it's a huge bonus. So people love that. Along comes COVID. The government says, do not go to your GP practice because they're, you know, we don't want people spreading COVID. And they gave to the GPs a piece of software called Livy, which is, which is a sort of Babylon lookalike. It wasn't as good as Babylon, but it's sort of a Babylon lookalike. The GPs jumped at the chance because they realised that they couldn't have people waltzing up to their surgeries because they might be carrying COVID. So people started using it. Now, of course, there were people for whom this kind of thing was too difficult to manage or it wasn't appropriate. They were still seen. They were seen by appointment. And people love these remote consultation things, you know, they're working well, the people are busy, got lives to lead, but they need a bit of help from their doctor. They love it. It's hugely popular. Now, the Daily Mail got a hold of the story. There are one or two instances where there were misdiagnoses over the phone. Uh, and the, but the truth is, I mean, let's talk the truth here. There are misdiagnoses face to face. So, you know, doctors are doctors. They're not gods and they're not, you know, mystic meg. Sometimes they do get things wrong. So I think you can kind of discount that. But the male jumped on it and, and we ended up with this row now between the BMA and Sajid Javid, who's not really very experienced in any of this. And, and suddenly everybody's in entrenched positions. The BMA are now saying to the uh, to their members, do not cooperate with the government on their recovery plan, which is a nightmare. So I don't know what Javi's going to do. I mean, I think he should backtrack and say, look, I've got hold of the wrong end of the stick here. Here's the answer. If people want to do stuff on the phone or video consultation, that's fine. But please ensure that people who don't can be seen. And if you're going to set a target, well, then you just set a target for the number of people who can be seen face to face, not the numbers, but the time, if you want to do something, you know, so there's plenty of ways of managing it. But the whole thing, has just got out of hand just in closing then roy as we wrap up our latest bulletin from the world of misery you know we've all had our shots and we are attempting to lead a normal life we're going to work we're going to the pub you wear a mask on the bus and you kind of scowl behind it at anybody who isn't wearing one and then you get to the pub and you and you take the mask off are we going to have to kind of confront our inconsistency are we going to have to personally curb our lives if the government won't give us sensible guidelines i mean basically you know would you, are you saying don't go to the pub don't go to see a band no absolutely not i'm not saying that at all i'm saying that uh, i mean i'm i'm in my mid-70s so i've had three jabs now and a flu jab so i'm a you know i'm a walking pin cushion i have done all i can do and i think you know for everybody else there's something that they can all do. They can all get a vaccination. They can all get a flu jab if you're over 50. I just think we've got to do sensibly what we can do. If you're asking me, would I go to a nightclub? 
Um, uh, actually, I'd love to see you at a nightclub, Roy. You'll oh. have to come out with us. Come out <laughs> raving. Okay, I'll come out raving. Uh, but not just yet. I mean, I, I don't really want to be in those big mass events. Um, and, you know, I've had a number of invitations to speak at conferences live, you know, and I've done them by Zoom because I'm kind of not ready for that yet. I just think people have got to do what they're comfortable with and be sensible. In the absence of government being sensible, it's up to the rest of us to be sensible. Just to close that, I mean, obviously their reputation for dithering and then acting at the last minute is so baked in now. It's almost the government's brand. What is going to happen if this fuzzily determined plan B isn't triggered soon? Are we on for a rerun of uh, of last year when it's going to be Christmas until the 22nd of December and then suddenly it isn't? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think uh, waiting lists are, are going to be shredded again. Uh, and, you know, and that's very important for a lot of people listening to this and need a hip or a knee or cataracts or what have you. The, that will be parked. Uh, the NHS will be full of people with uh, COVID. The numbers are going up horribly, 16%, I think, uh, I saw yesterday. Uh, and, the, of course, the big unknown is the flu. So the, uh, the NHS is going to be chock-a-block. And, it, and eventually somebody's going to have to blow the whistle and say stop. And the, the sensible thing is what we know is what came out of the Select Committee report that came out a couple of days ago was if you act early then it's more effective than acting late. So I would implore the government, please act early on this. Let's have a fire break and let's enjoy Christmas. Roy Lilly, one day we will have you on for happy reasons, I'm sure, but unfortunately not this time. But thanks for joining us. It's been my great pleasure. Keep safe. Thank you very much. Listeners, do follow Roy on Twitter. That's Roy Lilly with two L's. He does a fantastic set of updates and a brilliant newsletter that shows you what's really going on inside the NHS. It's really worth reading. We'll see you next time for another daily. We are aware that there have been some problems with accessing the podcast lately. We've just moved to a new platform. and There have been a few uh, small teething problems, but we hope to be back to normal very soon. Thanks for your patience and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.